Well, I invite you to turn with me just over a little bit, a couple pages, to Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning, we'll be looking together at the first 11 verses of Paul's letter. So over the first few weeks of this series, we spent most of our time looking back to how the church in Philippi got started. I had two main reasons for doing that. The first is that just unlike a lot of Paul's other letters, a lot of time passed between the time that Paul was actually in Philippi, planting the church, and the time that he wrote the letter to them. A lot of the times he writes the letters within just a few months, maybe a year of the time he was at a certain location. In this case, though, 12 years goes by between the church plant and the letter. And the second reason I wanted to look back was that the story of Paul and the Philippians shapes the entire letter. This is a story of friendship, love, partnership in the gospel, and that great story is woven through every page of the letter. So because of that, we took some time to go back to Acts chapter 16 so we could hear the story of how the gospel first came to the city of Philippi. And then last week, we walked through what happened in the 12 years in between. Uh, what happened between Paul and the Philippians. And maybe you remember the main thing is that the Philippian church, more than any other church that Paul planted, partnered with him in the gospel, sacrificially, faithfully, for a long, long time. In fact, that was what led to the writing of the letter. And so then we worked through the first eight verses of the letter last week. But if you were here, we did not really go into great detail on those verses. Instead, I just wanted us to get a feel for how Paul felt when he was writing the letter. I wanted us to get a sense for the deep love that Paul had for this church and that the church had for him. So today, I want to go back through the first 11 verses, look at them a little more closely, and we'll focus especially on the last three verses of the introduction to the letter, which is Paul's prayer for his friends. So let's get right into the text. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves, depending on your translation, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've read much of Paul's writings, that's a pretty standard greeting for him. Because of that, those two verses are pretty easy to skip over. Uh, But I just want to pause to think about a couple questions about them. So first of all, just notice Paul and Timothy are both mentioned. So what do we see about them in the first verse? For one thing, the letter seems to come from both of them. Now, Paul is certainly the main author, but Timothy is definitely involved in some way. Maybe he's the one who actually wrote the letter down. Paul seems to do that a lot, where he dictates a letter has somebody else write it down. And it's, it's worth remembering that Timothy is also really close to the Philippian church. They have known him since he was like 17 years old. And so they've seen his whole life as a believer. So Paul and Timothy send this letter over. But what's worth paying more attention to is the one description of Paul and Timothy. The one way they identify themselves to the church. Do you see it? Paul and Timothy... Slaves of Christ. Paul is a free Roman citizen. 
but his identity is that of a slave. They have been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. They belong to the crucified and risen king. Second, just look at what he says about the Philippians. So he doesn't say much, but look at verse 1. How are they described? He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Okay, these people are mostly Gentiles, and yet Paul calls them the saints, God's holy people. Paul has had to come a long way to ever say that about a group of Gentiles. Okay? He never would have said that sort of thing early in his life. <clears throat> and I just wonder, when you are asked about who comes to church, or when you look around and you see the people here, who do you see? What do you see? How would you describe the people gathered here with you today? These are, I think Paul would say, these are the holy people of God. People who once were not holy, but who have been made holy by Jesus. And then Paul, you notice how he highlights two locations where, the, where these people are. <clears throat> Do you see that? It says, to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi. Both locations are important in the letter. And we will often identify ourselves by those two locations too. Say We are in Christ in the Twin Cities. And that is the right order of those things. Okay? The first location is more important for your identity than the second. Okay? These are people who are no longer in sin or in the kingdom of darkness. These are people who are now and forever in Christ Jesus. These are Gentile people who live in the Roman Empire whose whole identity is now defined by their connection to the Jewish Messiah. Their whole lives are bound up in Christ, and yet they are gathered together in a specific time and location in the city of Philippi. These are the holy people of God in Christ, in Philippi. The third thing, just look at what he says about the church, because look at the end of verse 1. He never says this in any other letter. He highlights two offices in the greeting. He, ne he never does that. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. That's the only time Paul ever highlights those two group groups like that. So what are those groups? Overseers, deacons, an overseer is sometimes called what in the New Testament? There are different words for the same person or office. Overseer is one common word. Paul also calls this kind of person a pastor, or sometimes he calls this person an elder. All three of those refer to the same office in the New Testament. These are the people who oversee the ministry and who lead in teaching, who lead by example, who lead in the shepherding of the people of God. There, there are also not a whole lot of references at all to deacons in the New Testament. But the ones that are there, they're very important. Deacons are exemplary servants of Christ and of Christ's people. A healthy church has both overseers and deacons who are biblically qualified. And Paul sends his greetings for whatever reason in this letter, not just to the church at large, but also to the overseers and deacons. But then what do we see about God? So just thinking about the first two verses, Paul says in verse 2, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says that in almost the exact same way every letter he wrote. He wrote 13 letters. He says that almost identical thing in all 13. This is what Paul always wants the churches to have. Grace from God and peace from God. And he always connects those two things to the same sources. God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the source of what we need the very most. Grace and peace. But do you notice how Paul views Jesus? This person that just lived 25 years, 30 years before this, Paul sets Jesus as like a direct equal to God the Father. Paul sees Jesus not only as the Christ, which is to say like the promised king, but he sees Jesus as Lord, which is really important for Roman citizens who all were saying Caesar is Lord. But not just that, Paul sees the Lord Jesus Christ as equal with God the Father. He wishes grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the view of Jesus from the earliest letters in the New Testament. <clears throat> now we come to the verses that we looked at last week, where the friendship, love, partnership is on full display. So I just want to read them. Verses 3 through 8. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> now last week, when we looked at those verses, I just wanted us to get a feel for the love that was shared between Paul and the Philippians. But I, I want to press in further today on three things that Paul expresses in those verses. What's the first thing he expresses in, the, in those verses? Three to eight. His thankfulness to God for the Philippians, right? He says that in just about every way that he can. Okay. Now, now think about that. It's the Philippians who have been sacrificing, giving of themselves, sending people, sending money, offering up prayers, and yet Paul gives his thanks to whom? To God, right? For them. Okay. And so on the one hand, this shows us how Paul sees God as the source behind their love for him. Right? In other words, Paul doesn't say, thank you, Philippians, for your love. Though he could say that. But Paul says, I always thank God for your love. Paul knows the Philippians' love for him is God's gift to him. And I think you just think about that in terms of the church. Like if you've experienced the love of Christ's people, that is God's gift to you. 
God is behind that. And he sees something that we fail to see a lot of the time, that their faithful love is ultimately God's doing. On the other hand, I think it's clear Paul is affirming the Philippians for their support and their sacrifices for him. After all, he is telling them in the letter how thankful he is to God for them. All right, so he is, he is doing that to affirm them and to encourage their hearts. Second thing he expresses in that section is how much he loves them. Again, he says this in a whole bunch of different ways. But I love verses 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I know that not everyone in here is as expressive as every other person. Okay? I also know there can be different ways of communicating our love to other people. But I think there is something for all of us to learn here about actually telling other people in the church how important they are to you. And I know this can be particularly challenging for men okay, who are sometimes not used to expressing their affection, particularly to other men. <laughs> okay? But I would just point out that this was something Paul regularly did not only to churches as a whole, but he did this a lot to specific men that he loved. In addition, Jesus himself modeled this in his own life, where he not only loved indeed, he also was not afraid to tell them about his love in word. And I know some might say, well, my actions show that I love people, so I don't have to tell them. Okay, fair enough, but just know that that is not the approach of Paul or Jesus, who expressed their affection regularly in both deed and word. And then the third thing that Paul expresses in the text is in verse 6, maybe the most well-known verse of that section, where Paul expresses how confident he is in the Lord about his friends. That's right in the middle of the verses, verse 6, where Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. See, Paul not only affirms his thankfulness to God for them, he expresses his complete confidence in God about them. Paul has seen God do great things in Philippi for 12 years, and he is fully convinced that their faith is genuine. He has seen it put to the test. He has seen it withstand many trials. And so Paul expresses his complete confidence that the very same God who began his good work 12 years earlier will continue that good work in them until the day of Christ. Now, what does Paul mean by the day of Christ? He's going to talk about it twice in the first 11 verses, what, what does he mean? Day of Christ, this is just Paul's way of talking about the return of Jesus. And what he says here, I can say with confidence about every person who is truly born again, that God is absolutely committed to make you like Jesus. He will not give up 
on even one of his sons or daughters. God will continue working in you all the way until the day of Christ. Because our God is a God who always finishes what he starts. And if you ever begin to doubt that, whether in regard to maybe your own life, God's commitment to you, or whether it's you're doubting that about God's commitment to someone you love that's in his family, I would encourage you when you begin to doubt that about God to just rehearse the gospel story itself. Because we see this commitment, this characteristic of God in the gospel itself. I mean, think about it. In the Garden of Eden, God promised to send a Savior. And God never forgot his promise. He never stopped working to keep that promise, though his own people failed him at every opportunity, it seemed like. And then one day, God delivered on his promise by sending his own son to save sinners. And then you think of that son that God sent, Jesus. One of the things we see clearly in the life story of Jesus is his very, the very same commitment to finish the work he had started. I mean, there were countless times when Jesus could have quit. And he never did. He kept working. He kept moving until he cried out from the cross. It is finished. The gospel story itself reminds us that our God is a God who always finishes what he starts. And what Paul points out here is that God has the very same commitment to finish the good work he has begun in us. God worked in our lives in the past. You might not remember all the details about that, but if you confess Jesus today as your Lord, that means God worked in your life in the past to bring you to see him as that. And God has been working in you ever since and God will never stop working in your life until he brings you all the way to completion at the day of Christ. I mean, these words are words of assurance and affirmation at the beginning of the letter. And they provide us with a great model for how to communicate and what to say to each other in the church. I mean, these are the kind of words that if you hear them from somebody else, they bring life and healing and joy and strength to your heart. <clears throat> so I just want to stop and think about that for a minute, about our own words with one another. For example, are we, are we more prone to complain about what we do not see and our brothers and sisters, or to give thanks to God for what we do see. And, and let's say that we regularly thank the Lord for what he's doing in our church. Do we ever share that verbally with each other? 
mean, just think, when is the last time that you expressed in words to a brother or sister how much they mean to you and how much joy they bring you in the Lord? Or, or what about this? Have, have you ever expressed to a brother or sister your confidence in the Lord about them? Your confidence that they are going to make it to the finish line. If you have ever been on the receiving end of those kinds of words, you know how God can use those to keep you running, to help you not give up. Now we come to the last part of the introduction, where Paul shares not only that he prays, but he actually shares what he prays for the church. Look at verse 9, and we'll just read through this. It's a short prayer, and we'll think about it. Verse 9, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so you can approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I'm not sure if you've ever struggled to know what to pray for when you pray for your church family. <clears throat> we have a, a list of like the members of the church that goes to different, like different people are on different days of the month. Maybe you use that. Maybe you have other ways to pray for uh, other believers that you know, people within this church. Maybe you struggle to know what to pray for people. Maybe some you don't know as well, so you don't know what exactly to pray for. I would encourage you that the prayers of Paul, like this one here, are a great source for strengthening your prayers for your own family and for your church family. I would say in my own life, I do not know if there has been anything more helpful to my prayer life than to get really familiar with the prayers of Paul. Prayers like this one and the one that Sarah read earlier from Colossians chapter 1, these prayers, you meditate on them, maybe you Memorize them. Think about them. They can help you to think of ways, think of things that are always good to pray for about people that you maybe not, don't know what else to say to the Lord about. But now let's take a closer look at this prayer so we can see what we could learn. And, I, and as I've been thinking about the prayer, it's three verses, 9 through 11. But I think if you think of it in two ways, like two halves, it's helpful to remember. I think there's what Paul prays for in the present, and then Paul prays for those things in light of the future or with an aim towards the future. So you see this present and future element in the prayer. And, and I'm actually trying to think through this in my own prayers because I'm not necessarily great at the second part of that. Okay. Praying for things in the present, but Paul prays for those things with an aim toward the future. And I want to, I want to see this. So the first half focuses on the present, second half on the future. The first half shows what Paul asked God to do in the church in the present. And the second half shows us how Paul prayed for those things with his eyes looking toward the future. Okay, so let's look at verse 9 again. And just think, what is the main thing that Paul asked God to do in the text? Verse 9. It is my prayer that your love 
would abound more and more. That is the main thing of the prayer. Asking God to cause their love, which is already strong. He's not praying about people that don't love. He's praying about people that really do love. And what is he asking? God, please cause their love to abound more and more. This is a good reminder that our love can always grow. There will never be a time in your life or in my life where we have arrived when it comes to love. Now, Paul doesn't come out and say directly like the direction of the love that he's thinking about. For, for instance, is he praying that their love for God will grow? Do you think that? Well, like when you read this, is that what he's asking? Is he asking God to make their love for him keep growing? Is he asking God to make their love for each other in the church keep growing? I always like the all of the above, right? Anyways, but, uh, but in this case, what's maybe the focus? I think he would want all of those things. What do you think? I, I think probably in light of the letter and how Paul prays this kind of thing in other places, that his main request is that God would cause their love for each other in the church to grow more and more. This was near and dear to the heart of Jesus, and this was near and dear to Paul. I mean, Jesus told us <clears throat> that we would be known as his people by what? By our love for each other. And the same vision drove Paul's ministry and his prayer life. He longed to see churches knit together in love and to see that love abounding more and more. And this is what we should pray for our church and for each other. That our love for each other, which for some of us has stood the test of six years. For others, it's just coming into this church. But that our love for each other would grow more and more. That as the years go by, and the more time we spend together, walking together with Jesus, the more we would grow to love each other like Jesus loved us. <clears throat> and we should remember, this is not a given. This is not automatic. Some of us have very sad church experiences behind us where the love that was shared at one time did not continue where people that we used to be really close to no longer loved us or the love, the bonds of love were broken. I mean, you could say even the more time we spend together as a church, <clears throat> the more years we walk together as a church, the more we will see each other's faults and shortcomings. That happens in marriage too. Growing love is not automatic and has all the more reason to pray for love that grows and grows. But notice that isn't the only thing that Paul asks for in verse 9. There are two other things that Paul asks God to grow in the people. 
Look at verse 9. It's my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And this is something you'll see in Paul's prayers. It was in Colossians 1 as well. Is that we need both love and knowledge. One without the other is one too few. I mean, knowledge without love leads to what? Bad things. Like, namely in Paul, pride. We have probably met people with much knowledge and a little love. We have also probably been that kind of person in different situations. But love without knowledge Love without knowing what God wants or what is really best for someone often leads to bad things too. True love seeks what is truly best for someone else. But knowing what is truly best is not always easy. What is truly best is not always obvious. In fact, there may be significant disagreements between people about what is truly best for someone. And think about this at the, at the cultural level. I mean, in our culture, there is a good emphasis on loving children, for example. But there are competing visions about what is best for children. Similarly, there is often in our culture a very good impulse to help or to love those who are struggling or confused or hurting, but because there is often little knowledge of what God's will actually is or of what God says is the best for this person, the love that is shown or promoted is often not helpful but harmful from a biblical point of view. And so this prayer is a great model for us of how to pray for each other, not just in regard to our relationships with each other in the church, but also in regard to our relationship with our kids, our relatives, our neighbors, our coworkers. What we need is not love without knowledge or knowledge without love. We need God to cause our love to grow more and more right alongside knowledge of him and his will and discernment. And you can see this is Paul's aim in the text, because look at what he says in verse 10. When he says, so that you may approve what is excellent, or as the NIV says, so that you may be able to discern what is the very best. And this leads to Paul's bigger goal in praying for these things. Paul's driven to pray like this by a vision that he has for the future. There is something he wants to see happen among his friends in the future. What is that? So I'll read the whole text again, verse 9, the, the prayer. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so you can approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When you pray for your kids or your friends or your spouse or your church, how often 
does the day of Christ, the return of Jesus, shape your prayers? This is a challenge for me. Probably the biggest challenge of this text for me this week. This is often a deficiency in my own prayers. I often don't think far enough ahead in my prayers. This prayer challenges us to pray not just with tomorrow in view or even next week or even next year. This prayer challenges us to pray for each other with the day of Christ in view. What do we really want for our church? What do you want for your brothers and sisters? What do you want to see happen to them? What do you want for your children? I think, what do I really want for you as a pastor? I want to see you. We ought to want to see each other pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with beautiful fruit that came not from our strength, but through our connection to Jesus, all to the glory and praise of God. Is that what you really want for your kids, for your spouse, for your brothers and sisters? It is very easy to live with only next week in view. And I know it is very easy to pray that way. But may God help us to live and to pray with the day of Christ in view. I think our prayers will be deeply strengthened if when we pray, our vision is of the future day of the very person we are talking about standing before Jesus, what would you hope about them on that day? What would you want to see if you got to see them stand before Jesus? You would want to see them pure, blameless, filled with a life of good fruit that came through their connection to Jesus, all to the glory and praise of God. May God help us to pray for good things for each other now, but to always pray for those things with the future day in view. Let's pray for that even now. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters with whom... I have partnered, we have partnered together in the gospel for six years, many of us. Lord, I thank you for the joy and the love that we share, for the joy it is every week to come together, to raise our voices together. I thank you for the love that I have experienced, that my family has experienced, that we have experienced with one another. 
And Father, I pray that our love will grow more and more with knowledge and discernment so that we can do what is truly best for each other so that we all may stand one day pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with good fruit to your praise and glory. We pray this with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen.